a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. You ready to have a good time? On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. Look, let's get right into this. Uh, Brian Adams, so happy you heard it's World Tour. Officially in full swing. Going to be hitting a whole bunch of Canadian cities this late um, late summer, early fall. Hitting Montreal in September. Tickets on sale at eventco.ca. Also ticketmaster.ca for tickets to uh, the city near you. Also pick up So Happy It Hurts, available now wherever you get your music. We're absolutely thrilled to be talking to the one, the only, the Canuck icon himself. Some would say the unsung hero, but he's a legend in my books. And we finally got him on the show, Keith Scott. There you go. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> absolutely. It, you know, what What amazes me is that you, you have played on, your riffs are, are on so many classic rock staples run to you. Summer of '69, and uh, just quickly talk to me about that. Knowing that you're, you've been on so many massive singles and massive hits, because you know sometimes when they when they put together the best guitarist list and all, you know they list Ingve Momstein and stuff, but they don't leave, list you necessarily. And, and quite frankly, you should be top ten on every list. Yeah, <laughs> well, kind of you to say that. Uh, maybe we have to look at how we evaluate who is whatever that is, good or you know who's better than others, and. Yeah, you know, I think the obvious focus for most people is, you know, their virtuosity, and that's always been top of the priority for how they rate people. So, you know, I'm I'm given a certain area to work with with a really great singer named Brian, and uh, whatever I've contributed has been kind of determined by what material I've given, and right. simplicity has always worked best in that case. Um, prior to working with Brian, I was in a band in the West Coast, and uh, it was it was interesting because I got to learn to write material based around what I wanted to play and like solos and that, which you know I think is a great place to start as a guitar player. So I would write these horrible songs, but they had a really great middle eight I could play over and and solo and learn to play <laughs> over changes, <laughs> and it was kind of selfish, but the song suffered, but. I really enjoyed that. And it was infinitely more complex than what Brian did. So going from that into Brian was quite a lesson and learning to support a whole other entity, which is a popular song. And uh, given that, and you have to remember a lot of what Brian uh, recorded, he initiated at the demo stage. So I would go, uh, Jim Valance uh, had a studio in his base. I would go to their house in the early years, in the early eighties. And they'd popped up some song. They'd come put your two cents on. And then generally whatever i did at that stage or whatever brian did because he would play some that would kind of remain as the template to work from so Mm. it was a collaborative thing but at the same time a lot of it was spontaneous and whatever went down the demo was hard to get away from so the solos and like whatever songs it's only love and all that were done at the demo stage it was pretty close to what was done there i just tried to copy as as best i could with hopefully a better sound who was playing those solos like on the demos? Was it Brian or was it Jim? Both of us. Both a lot of it, the, the, the sort of shredding things were me. Brian was more about the melodic things. So he would come up with the whole melody thing for One Night Love Affair was all kind of him. But I actually, I think, played the solo where he might have played the top line. Uh, it, it would kind of go back and forth. And as time went on, I got more responsibility that way. So, Right. Was it sort of like him developing a trust for you to say like, okay, now you got free reign to play your solo or like, it sounds like he was a bit controlling in that sense. Um, 
it's it's more about certain songs had a specific melody in mind and other ones yeah. were because of what we were doing at the time. So we were playing in arenas. We started out supporting arena acts. So foreign yeah. journey. And as Brian, as we got out there, we understood what the, what was necessary to keep people interested. It wasn't just a pop song. You had to kind of make a show and, mm-hmm. uh, being a virtuoso kind of idea was becoming more required. So I would go up there and shred away at, at things like kids want to rock or things like that, which we basically stole the whole energy from, from Billy Idol was, uh, <laughs> from Rebel Yell. But that, that was a really influential record for us to try to get the next step to try and make, get people interested in the energy because uh, I got involved for you want it, you got it. I wasn't part of that recording. I was before me. But we understood that the material was perhaps a little bit light for what we were doing. We had to move into a bigger energy. And uh, and mm-hmm. like we talked about the Aerosmith show right. in Montreal. And we realized that to get to the next level of energy, we had to be more like that and mm. be more forceful and and just you know, more rock and roll, I guess. Well, all right, let me, let me, let me start you there because uh, we, we mentioned that off air. I saw you the first time in February of 83 on a bill with Anvil and Aerosmith. In the Montreal Forum, right? In the Montreal Forum, which was fascinating because Anvil was red light, smoke, mm-hmm. orange light, and, you know, and then Brian in a, in a white button-down shirt and jeans, and then Aero, it was, it was the most bizarre show I've ever seen. It, but it was fantastic. <laughs> But, diversity of it but but a couple of years later in 85 i see you again at the at the at the forum two shows sold out uh you know headlining talk to me about about that time where you're opening for aerosmith and then literally two years later you become the biggest thing in canada when did you start noticing that things were turning from being the opening act to being the act was there a moment where you where suddenly a song hit and you went oh shit buckle up tight because it's going to be one bumpy ride or how did you because those two years went really fast i mean you were unknown basically when i saw you yeah i mean I, there's a multitude of reasons and right. i often reflect on it because you know there's a there's a lot to reflect too you know they just so much there and uh there's I, I try to explain it in the simplest terms in that uh, it was a time where a lot of opportunity was presented. First right. of all, in Brian's case, he'd already established mm. himself as a songwriter. He was writing for everybody. Uh, and he wanted to be an artist. And I don't, people probably don't know this, but he was signed to AM uh, Records in Canada at the time mm-hmm. as a publishing person, not an artist. And he had to really, really beg them to. To convince them to to put him on the roster as an artist, and they really weren't that keen. They didn't really feel he was a, a long term artist. So he finally got them to agree. We started doing the recordings as we started to open up for people in the United States, especially. You, you understood that it required a certain energy, like I was trying to explain. Right. And he had to rethink it. He started rethinking his material he was writing. Uh, okay, this is the kind of material I should writing. So he already had a template uh, for or the writing style, uh, because he was writing for people like, you know, Kiss and right. the Blue Oyster Cult. And a Run To You, I believe, was given to Blue Oyster Cult, and they rejected it, so we used it. So there's wow. just a lot of that, you know, like people really don't really know. 
or they record it and we went and re-recorded it anyway. So, um, and, and we started to see that. Plus, at that time, in the early 80s, MTV had just taken hold. Uh, the ramp time for you to get, you take three or four records when the record company kind of build up your reputation. Right. If you were lucky enough to keep writing and, and have uh, songs that would continue to have success and all that. So mm. uh, we had to kind of look at that as well. Uh, I think between 1983, we were able to open up to this band Journey, who were at the peak of their career at the time and were doing multiple dates in big arenas, like three, four nights, Detroit, Chicago, Dallas, LA, everywhere across the United States. That kind of exposure was, I mean, we were really fortunate to have that at that time. And uh, that combined with MTV. So the time period from, like you say, 1982, 83 to 85, it was kind of condensed because of all this extra help that just kind of came out of the, the sky. And we just happened to ride that wave. And by the time The Reckless came out, it was Brian was smart enough, Jim was smart enough to understand what kind of material it took to get to that next level. And when Reckless came out, I mean, it was all done on the fly. And I, I reiterate this story because... And Brian and I did an interview in Scotland last month uh, with some people there, radio. And we talked about, he said, I would, we'd have a couple of days off in, in America somewhere. We'd sit in the hotel and, and relax. Brian would get on the first flight he could, fly back to Vancouver, write a couple songs with Jim for who knows, for himself, for whoever, fly back on the tour. So his work ethic was like off the charts. He understood oh. what it took. To, to keep the, the whole machine going, that you had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, reevaluating what you're doing. Yeah. And, and between him and Jim, who Jim's superb musician and, and a super intelligent guy and focused. So yeah. between the two of them, they really had a really good hold of it. You know, they understood what it took. So I think it was a lot of that. It was a combination of a bunch of elements all together. Hence the rapid rise uh, in popularity and all that. So, how were you getting those tours? Because you had Foreigner Four, you had Journey. I guess it was Frontiers. I mean, these were some of the biggest acts at the time, and you were essentially, and you know, I think you'll agree, unknown really. And here you are opening for the two melodic rock giants of the day. Yeah, you had to have a bunch of people on your side. First of all, your management. And the key player in that was Bruce Allen and his Correct. management uh, strategy. Um, he had been owed favors by those acts. <laughs> we like the favors. We like the favors. <laughs> well, I think that's how it works. And the more, right. the longer I've been in the business, I've been with Brian 40 years now and prior to that. So I'm close to a 50-year person as a performer. So you understand what it takes, you know, in, 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 in those initial years. And uh, BTO was... Of course, well prior to Brian, had been super successful in the United States. He had acts like Journey and ZZ Top and that open up for them. And so when it came time to return the favor, people like Loverboy and Brian at the time were able to get on some important uh, exposure tours like that. And it kind of kind of goes in full circle. So it just it's kind of a business like that. And right. I noticed that about recording as well, if... Uh, people that understand that you're know, producers, they hired, they got hired as young people and they return the favor to other people. So I've noticed that being a, a recording person as well. So it is kind of a handshake situation, but I have to say Bruce Allen, the management, a record label that believes in you promoters that will believe that you can do business for them. Uh, it's all, all that an agent that will represent you and thinks he can sell you. I mean, that's another story going over to Europe where, 
they, everybody thought we were crazy to go over there in the early 80s, but uh, it's a really big part of Brian's success now. So. Yeah, let me just ask you one follow up to that. You're you're not playing the bars. You're not playing the local whatever rib fest. You're you're out like we said with Journey and Foreigner. Do you learn something about the business when you see how it's organized and how it's running like a machine and how the and how they write their songs and like does any of that stuff you go ooh okay if it's good enough for Neil Sean it's definitely good enough for me. Yeah, I mean Neil's my age and I watched him. You know, I record his recordings when I 16, 17, he was in Santana. So he was a guy I really looked up to and watching his work ethic and how he approached being a performer and how they approached being a band, uh, the, the direction of the music, you know, all that. He can't help, but if you're paying attention, and hopefully I was a little bit, uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, if you look at the song like heaven, which was Brian's first number one song in the United States, mm-hmm. We were in the middle of the journey tour. We recorded it, and we used Steve Smith from Journey on the drums because Mickey yep. couldn't do it. And you know, we kind of used their sort of approach as a as a guide. And mm-hmm. I think Neil might have said something. Ah, yeah, you kind of stole my thing for that song. He wasn't very happy, <laughs> but uh, I, it just. But that that's kind of what was working at the time between bands like that, Foreigner, Ario Speedwagon. He wanted to get noticed on the radio you had to kind of fit into a slot and and that was kind of brian having the experience of being a writer like that he understood that and that song was for a film it wasn't for a record so it kind of became something yeah really did let's um talk about recording really quickly before i get into the whole mutt lang thing and all that stuff working (sighs) with bob on reckless and into the fire i mean when people talk about guitar tones of the 80s they talk about eddie van halen they talk about richie sambor they talk about neil sean but it's rare that anybody mentions the guitar tones of Brian Adams records, and I think they're in the top five, some of the greatest tones of all time. Sure. I mean, you, you had, I mean, you listen to Heat of the Night, and you're rivaling Steve Ray Vaughan. You listen to <laughs> the melodies uh, and the and the tone of like you know Run to You. Uh, talk a little bit about your rigs, and you know where were you getting your tone from at the time? That's a, it's an interesting point because. And the initial recording I did was in 1982, we started recording uh, into the uh, Cuts Like a Knife, sorry. Yeah. Um, I remember we, between Brian and I, we had probably had three or four guitars and a couple of amps, and that was it. And it was, you know, it wasn't the greatest situation. And I remember Bob Grimmout saying, you know, you guys probably want to think about upgrading your equipment level here because... <laughs> you know, I can get sounds, but, you know, it's so difficult. You need, you know, you give an example. So-and-so comes in the studio and he's got like five amps and 10 guitars and you need the flexibility. So we kind of sheepishly looked at each other. <laughs> so, okay, well, we started to do a little collecting. So hence uh, being out with Journey and, and we had time off or whatever. I, we'd hit the music stores, try to find things. And Bob would say, try this, get this amp, get this guitar, this is it. And then it'll make your life easier. The recording process will be quicker. It's all about being efficient, you know. So, mm. and, and that's kind of where it came from. So by the time we got to Reckless and to the Fire, we had a small arsenal. I would say arsenal. We probably had four or five guitars each and a bunch of amps that we knew would work. So I hope that we'd progress somewhat for them. But I can tell you, Reckless, most of that stuff was borrowed or rented. For the sounds. Wow. So, yeah. Actually, Pat that. mentioned that about the drums too. He said, I showed up and they just had like a rented kit. There was like a Black Beauty snare, some cymbals, and that was, it was just the rented kit that was on the record. 
Yeah. And the guitars too. Brian had these New Orleans era eighties Les Pauls. I had this beat up seventies Strat that I had kind of configured like Eddie Van Halen with one pickup in it because that he was the guy at the time. Yeah. And uh, we rented Marshalls. Brian had a JC one twenty Roland that he used for the Django bits. We used a Music Man. We had a fifty watt Marshall. But I remember a lot of the overdubs were echoes. We finally took the basic tracks from Little Mountain, Vancouver, and we went to uh, to New York at Power Station where Bob was kind of ensconced. And uh, mm-hmm. we had a rented Marshall from SIR. And we kind of used that for a lot of the overdubs, a couple of different guitars. I borrowed, we went upstairs to do an overdub for some things. I remember I borrowed Nile Rogers' famous Strat. It was in the closet. Oh, nice. And, uh, and things like that. You know, we just, whatever. We borrowed this red candy, red 60s Strat for most of the overdubs. That, and <laughs> the joke was in 1984, and the guy that had rented it to us, or loaned it. It wouldn't rent it. It was loaned to us. And he said, you can have it for 800 bucks because I need the money. And we passed. <laughs> what? I know. At the time, we were not going to use it. We we're going to use, you know, we just didn't think. There was not that kind of, you know, focus or pressure to buy things like that as there is, you know, was in the 90s. We just kept adding and adding and adding. But yeah, uh, yeah. but that guitar, finally, Brian got some sense. And he went and bought it a couple of years later with like five times the price, whatever they oh. wanted but but it's still in his possession and it's a it's a great guitar so that would have done all the solo work on it's only love or things like that so yeah it just it was a big piece of the recording and uh, a lot of it was brian's and les paul's that he had from that those days the beginning summer 69 was this kind of candy burgundy uh, les paul it was just what he bought off the shelf you know there was no nothing special just it's all about the idea you know I think. yeah and it's funny with a guy like bob he can dial in something that works, you know. No, completely. It's it's nice to hear that you guys weren't gear snobs because so many <laughs> guitar players would go into the studio and be like, no, I need this, I need this. You guys are like, oh, if it sounds good, it sounds good. We'll, we'll take no, it. Because all, all my heroes, it was never about the instrument or the amp. It was about what their idea was, and it was in their hands. And it doesn't matter. If you have a great idea and you can hear the sound in your head, it's nine times out of ten, it's going to come out. So uh, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan played one guitar for most of his career. Yeah, uh, everybody really. Jimmy Page only had a couple in the early. I mean, what's better than that? The early Zeppelin, mid Zepp stuff. It, it, he just knew what to get. It's the experience of recording and an idea and riding those waves. And mm-hmm. uh, and I, I firmly believe that this whole impetus on having mass collections. I mean, it's nice. It's, I, I guess the interest is there, but it's not necessary to make great music. Yeah. No, completely. Brad Gillis is not having any part of this. He's like, I want my my 87 guitars. Um, Just quickly on Bob Rock. Um, You're known as Bob's go-to guy, and you've you've appeared on a lot of records, but as a ghost. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Bob and and what he comes to you, and and, some of the big records he's played on, the Motley Crue's and the Metallica's. Are you secretly on any of those records? <laughs> no, I wish. Wouldn't that <laughs> no, be nice? You know, you have to remember we go back a long, long ways. We uh, we were friends first. Right. You know, we became friends when I was in this club band and we were doing demos. And he had just got a job. He moved from Victoria, BC, and he got a job as a tape operator. Right. And he was a musician. I knew that because we. I brought in my rig at the time, which was a high watt underwater head and cabinet. He goes, oh, I've got a high watt, and we instantly uh, built a friendship around the, the gear and, and the interest in that and we stayed in touch so 
and he had his band, he's just starting to put his band together at Paolos uh, right. or Rock and Hide, whatever you want to call it. And mm. anyway, he's remained a friend uh, since that time. And we've always mutually ex- respected each other. And it's only in the last maybe 10, 15 years where he's made more of an effort to hire me for things. And, you know, he, I just really appreciate that. And I mean, I show up on a date and it's Lyle Workman and it's Mike Landau or, you know, it's somebody. And I think, what am I doing here? <laughs> These guys Dan are like, Huff's in the studio. You're like, why am I getting called? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, sadly, no, I, I've only met Dan, but not in a session. Uh, Rusty Anderson, uh, people like that. Bob likes to use a, a real variety of people that he knows, well, you cover this part, you're going to cover this part. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it's that same, it's the producer network thing. David Foster does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he always reiterates a story about when he was a young man going to LA, the, a guy that uh, embraced him and introduced him to people to get work was um, uh, the drummer, uh, the great drummer that played uh, for uh, on the Lennon stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll think of his name in a minute. Um, I'm trying but, to think. Yeah. Uh, he just he, uh, he just passed away too, didn't he? No, no, no. He's around. He's, oh, he's around. around. It's he was on Joe Cocker and all that. Man. Oh yeah, can't remember um, his name. I, I'll think of it in a sec. Anyway, he did that for David. He never forgot that. So he's kind of the same. You know, he likes to look after people. He feels like it's a payback for all, whatever. I think. I think that's the philosophy, and I, yeah. that's what we got from David. So again, it's a producer thing. They like to network. Uh, they like to change things around, like to have a variety of people. And I'm just lucky right. enough that I'm friends with Bob and he includes me on, on a lot of things. Uh, Jan R and I got three records with her, three tours. Share. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was early on. That was Bruce Fairburn. And right, Bruce right. Fairburn was the same. He he knew that he could get a certain thing from different people. And I, I before he passed away, he would call me once in a while too. So I was, I was lucky to you know, be in a position where I could do that. So. Just uh, real quick, just, just talk to me about the studio scene in Vancouver in the 80s, because you, you had guys like Mark LaFrance that would show up everywhere. You had Lou Graham that showed up on Reckless. There, right. there just seemed to be this, this moment in time where Vancouver was the hottest place and all you guys sort of ended up on everybody's albums, or at least you hung out together. What was that time like? And of course, the Little Mountain Sound. And, and what was all that time like for you? Well, I think that you just nailed it. Uh, the studio, the success of the studio kind of infiltrated the city and it created an awareness. And mm. once you have that studio, Little Mountain, become a focus for people to go make records in, and it was really starting to get popular. And I think it just kind of filters into the community and other studios get built. And there's a lot of things that are combined to, to make that happen. So, um, mm. I, honestly, in the 80s, I was rarely there. I was on tour with Brian. We were all over the place. So, But we would hear about it, and Bob would tell me. He'd say, well, we're doing this. I'm doing Metallica. I mean, it was like, okay. This is like and Bon Jovi was there. He'd come out to clubs at night. Once we'd see him hanging around. Uh, Molly Crew was there. Um, I mean, just everybody. He was the guy in uh, White Snake, uh, John Dave. Sykes. You know, he'd be out you know, making that record there. So there was, it was a lot going on, but honestly, I was really not there to witness all the recording side that was the periphery. And But I think the initial thing was Bob going into Little Mountain and going, this is not going to work unless we do this. And there was a big square room that was the main room at Little Mountain. And it, I, my experiences there were it was difficult to get sounds because mm. a square box does not really... 
I don't know. It's a great situation. It's setting it sound for, good. <laughs> it just the sound kind of bounces around. It is no. It doesn't breathe. Yeah. And um, Bob said, I think what we should do is it was these two loading doors and the size two that went into this sort of concrete filled uh, park thing that was closed off. Yeah, it was like a loading bay, I think. The loading bay. They call it the loading bay. And so he <laughs> took the drum set and he ran these panels, solid sheet metal, and made this arc into the loading bay, put two mics in the loading bay uh, as a stereo room sound, compressed the heck out of it, and voila, the the, the room sound, a giant room sound, was made even more apparent. So mm. it caught, I think it caught the attention of people in the business. And they went, you know, that, that's a pretty big sound. That's, and then people came and they started experimenting. Of course, Bob, the rock, he just went to town with it. He just had a great time. Because, well, I'm not, they went to five. I'm going to take it to 10. And because yeah. he, he's a very skilled engineer as well. You know, so, yeah. And a musician. He understands it. So. Well, that's it. I mean, you listen to the drums on like, jeez, uh, loving an elevator, or you listen to a Doctor Feelgood and like that snare drum. It like you hear those drums, you know that's Little Mountain right away. Or living on a prayer, the da 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 da. Like that's the sound. And at the time, kind of created its own sort of awareness. And you know, people like Mike Fraser and Mike Potnikoff and all these guys that followed in in, in place. There truly is a Canadian sound. I mean, that that eight that late eighties was a Canadian sound in terms of production and style and 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 all that stuff. Here, um, I want to ask you just one thing about Brian. Brian has been a, a in a sense, it's his name on the marquee, and he's a solo guy. And a lot of solo guys they change their players every three years, five. But he's stuck with you, and he's stuck <laughs> with Mickey, and he's stuck with Pat. Um. Just talk to me about that relationship. Forget the business side, but just on a personal side, the fact that when he got big with Reckless and he got big with, you know, uh, everything I do and do, he didn't say, well, now I'm going to go hire Eddie Van Halen and Steve. He he stuck with the guys. I mean, mm. talk to me a little bit about the fact that you're the guys and you're the band and there's a loyalty, an incredible loyalty. Yeah, yeah, I think loyalty is part of it. Family is another word we use, uh, and there's a mutual respect. So I, I, I don't know. I I mention that all the time. I said, "Can we be hired me all these years?" And he said, "No, you, it's important. You you've always added something, you know, or something. He'll he'll make it. He'll qualify it, you know, somehow. Because mm-hmm. I don't get it either. You could have anybody. You could have the Mike Landhouse. You could have whoever, you know. Yep. And but I don't think he he tried it actually." In 2012, he got a proposal from David Foster to do a covers record. And uh, we hired all these people. We had Ada Boreal, We had uh, Josh Freeze on drums. We had all these guitar players come in. We had Workman, Rusty Anderson, and myself. And I think in the end, he realized that you don't need that. He didn't need that to accomplish his goal. He could use people that he was comfortable with over the years, and hence the family term. Mm-hmm. And he could reiterate what he wanted and get the result he wanted with the people that he knew without having any kind of obstacles or I don't know. That's the only way I can possibly explain it. And and loyalty is another one, I guess, you know, and that still remains. So I, I think we're really, really lucky to have that as individuals and musicians. So. And I think especially when you're on the road as much as you guys are, I mean, I think the stability of having familiarity definitely helps to create a, a bit of a comfortableness, too. I, I agree totally. Uh, we've had different people on base in the last 10 years. And 
the people that work best are the ones that fit personally. You know, it based, you know, obviously there's different levels of requirement there, but if you have a guy that fits and he works with the other members and there's no issues, then, then there's usually no problem. And that's a big part of it is getting along. Yeah. The hang is more important than being able to play eruption sometimes. <laughs> well, it is. Well, I don't know. Maybe eruption ain't bad either. Sadly, we'll never hear it done by the original guy again. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Did you ever get to hang out with Eddie Van Halen? I mean, like, I saw yeah. some photos like not long ago, but like, did you ever, were you ever close with him or? Not close. No. I mean, he, he was always. Because you're so- credited as apparently being his favorite guitar player <laughs> through the 80s. Uh, maybe he got me mixed up with somebody else. No, I he I remember that he had said things, but he would come out and he was a fan. He loved Brian. He loved his voice, and uh, he was always so so great. And he just he was just a normal guy, and he didn't really just what are you using? What's up there? You know, so just this, but you know, he's just he was just really cool. And um, I did hear about the comment in a publication, and he was said something about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I just. I thanked him for that. I think at the time, which was the eighties, late eighties. So, yeah. But he's he just was he's just a really nice guy, and obviously, you're a little intimidated because of his role in electric guitar in the last forty years or whatever. So, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's good. Keith Scott being intimidated by Eddie Van Halen. Jeez. Well, seriously. <laughs> well, you have to remember at that time, the late seventies, early eighties, and that was all coming to bear again, and. People were saying in the late seventies, "Oh, guitar is dead." You know, I remember people, Bruce Springsteen saying something like that. And no, it wasn't. Guitar is dead. Rock is dead. It's a- no, no, yeah. and it came back with a vengeance. You know, things like Ozzy came out with Randy Rhodes and Eddie and ACDC back in black, and it was like, "No, it is coming back to get you," and it really did, and it hasn't gone away. You see kids on YouTube, 10, 12 years old, and they are absolutely shredding it and doing yeah. really well. So. I guess that's the biggest advantage. There's so much more information available at a younger age as opposed to when we started. We had to skip the record thing to get the notes, but now you got a guy who's written it all out and tab for you. I mean, everything you've ever wanted to know. So yeah, going ultimate great. guitar and you got every tab you could possibly want. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's great, and it's, the information is available, and it's inspiring for young players, and it's inspiring as a as a experienced player to see people embracing it when the business yeah. has changed so much and you think that would be a deterrent maybe but it hasn't it just yeah. i want to do I a do little bit of a deep dive oh yeah go oh, ahead Mitch. well i just want to one one question on the rocks thing uh because so happy it hurts is is a great rock record and it's back to that sound that we all love and appreciate with the success of everything i do i do it for you and then heaven there, there, there came a slew of of slow ballads. Please forgive me. All for love. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you, have you ever wanted to? At some point, was was it was it chasing a trend or sort of chasing the hits instead of writing what was sort of genuinely in the heart, or was that artistically what he wanted to do and what the band wanted to do? Because it just seemed, from my perspective or the fan perspective, is that it's like, oh, it's another ballad. Oh, it's another ballad. Oh, it's another ballad. Um. <sighs> Just uh, it's yeah, because Mitch yeah. hates ballads. Uh, by the way, <laughs> I, no, I don't. I don't hate ballads, but I do blame ballad. I, see, everybody says Nirvana killed uh, hair metal, and I always say no. It's the power ballad because people forgot. You know, Motley Crue wasn't rocking anymore, and fans wanted a rock band. You know, I just think it, you know most artists have to learn to adapt, and right. whatever is available for you at the time, yeah, if that becomes a success, then you you try to embrace it, and whether it's ballads or if it's electronic music it doesn't matter you just you kind of learn to roll with the punches and but you're right in the early 90s the nirvana 
record basically erased the memory of all the 80s stuff in one fell swoop. So, right. yeah. Hence, hence, you got a record like 18 Till I Die, which going for more of a Brit pop sort of guitar sound and things. Which, yeah. You know, I've been listening got, to that record a lot lately, by the way. It's one of my favorite okay. records still, right? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, but I think the ballad thing, it was uh, a formula that Brian liked to do because he had. Uh, two other people involved in it. Michael Kamen being the most important right? because he initiated the, the melodic thing. He was involved because those Save for Please Forgive Me, which was basically a mutt idea. Um, the, the other ballads, uh, the Spanish song and uh, All for Love initiated as themes from a film. So they right. took those themes and wrote a pop song which inevitably wound up being in a ballad because that's what did well with film to get the song on the film it had to be that kind of format. So it was just another way to get your message out. And right. we can look back in hindsight and say, well, there's a lot of ballads. And yeah, because that's kind of what was working for that artist at the time, you know, and you couldn't get a rock 80s sounding rock song on the radio. I mean, it had to be Brit pop or the Nirvana. It was, completely shifted in the 90s right kind of chasing that you would have wasted your time so just do what you're strong at and i guess there was no real formula it was just doing what you thought was right at the time right i want to do a bit of a deep dive in your work with mutt lang uh, waking up the neighbor <laughs> is one of my favorite records of all time and last time i interviewed brian uh in montreal he was telling me some crazy tales about writing with mutt in the studio and <laughs> just like the stories about you know like recording not guilty and him just dumping the entire verse because he didn't like the mm -hmm. verse and recording backing vocals what was the guitar process like for that record because we've uh, we've had phil collin from def leppard on the show a bunch of times mm -hmm. and he's told us some amazing stories about you know the one string at a time stuff which is like whatever but like what were some of the most like bizarre or scenarios that mutt put you through when you were recording that record uh First of all, I have to say nothing but glowing things about Mutt. Yeah. Because oh, no, this is the We Love Mutt Lang show. So yes. <laughs> no, I mean, it's none was, of that. <laughs> because a lot of the urban myth I've heard has been how difficult it's been. And he, even he reiterated stories about working specifically. Well, there's a long, long story about drummers, but um, I won't get into it. But at, Well, at we all know that it was the Fairlight and everything, the programming and everything on the records. Well, it was a Lynn machine because... He had real issues with the guy in he. That's a long story, but I guess the drummer in Foreigner at the time, uh, he and him had, had sort of uh, issues about how to approach the sound. And he, the drummer in Foreigner, is, um, uh, Dennis Elliott, is a terrific drummer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a certain sound. He's a kind of a jazz guy. And I said, no, no, I, I'm looking for more of a big rock sound. And he didn't want any part of it. So I think at the time told me, he said, I just said, I'm going to move on. I'm going to use a drum machine. They figured out how to make it sound more like a rock drummer. So yeah. from that point on, uh, Cards, uh, ACDC, of course, was a band. He just sat there and recorded them according to him. So mm. they had their own swing. And yeah, <laughs> they are who they are. And it's unbelievable. So, um, But he had kind of made a thing about he wasn't going to use a real drummer. So there, there was that and other urban myths about the one string at a time, which I don't think they ever did. It was a myth, you know, but I, if I talked to Phil, which I have, and he said, I don't think that happened. But it wasn't really anything out of the ordinary, save for that Mutt has a certain sense of swing. 
Mm-hmm. And we, of course, waking up the neighbors was a drum machine, and uh, save for Mickey playing cymbals on it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, Mickey said he sat there with basically a drum kit of just cymbals and was just hitting yeah. cymbals. And they would use just they would just use like decays of the cymbals, like at the end of snare hits and like different stuff. Exactly it. You know, they had it. The drums were programmed. It was more of a added added on to give it more realistic thing. Because when we went to go play the band, we were a band. We weren't a drum machine. We had to make it more like that. So, mm-hmm. and it came to the mixing stage. That hopefully helped. But anyway, the process for guitars wasn't any really different from what we'd gone through. It was just way more work because there were so many more ideas. Like the songs on there, I, I swear we would spend a week just doing the one track. Like a, Brian had already put his rhythm track. I would go and put my rhythm track and then add a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, swells and little melodic bits and jangly bits. And Mutt would be writing them at the time. So we'd be ex- yeah, he'd have a guitar and say, try this. Uh, okay, let me change this. And we record it. we got to change this note. So that process alone, creating the part, took, took, just took ages. And the fact that we were out in his studio in the country, you know, there was some distractions, you know, people coming by to visit or there was deer in the garden or something, you know. I mean, it was – but the process – it just took forever, but it wasn't like overbearing. It was just, we knew it was going to take time. And Brian describes it as he's not a taskmaster. He's just genuinely no. trying to get the best performance out of you possible. And it takes Absolutely. time to get that. That's so true. And I've never met anybody that had such a focus. And there was one track on, on that record, Vanishing. And he's, we got, I thought, wow, this is really cool. And he goes, there's one more thing I want to try. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you cannot fit another part on this track. You're crazy. <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking that. And yes, just try this. Of course, I play it and it's like, oh, it's genius. You know? right. I, I never argued with him. I just did it. And I was always so pleasantly surprised uh, what he would come up with. All his, like this guitar solo bits that he would help me with. He always had a plan, you know, he, but I had to kind of decipher what that was. After, and after several months, I think I went from July to Christmas of 1990 and went home for Christmas, came back, and then we went to March. And we, so I was probably there not quite a year just doing my parts. Yeah. And <laughs> just before Christmas, I was, the engineer was driving me back from the studio to my place in London. And, and I had to have a particularly rough day playing. And I just said, I'm just, I'm not getting it. And he, he said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm, I'm, I've been here five months. And I'm not even close to being done. He said, you're going to be out of here in a few months. Phil took two years to do his part for Def Leppard. You're going to be out of here. Don't worry. (laughs) Nothing against Phil. It's just they had way more going on for them. That It was way more guitar things now. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, they took their time. I think, but it's uh, it's interesting. We're talking about Mutt's approach to guitars and arrangements. I mean, from what I've understood and like listened to his arrangements and work, it seems like he works in frequencies. So when you said like you know he'll come up and say, "Oh, just add this," well, there's no way you can fit another guitar part on that. But then yeah. if it fits in a certain frequency, like it'll it'll fit. And it's almost like that's the way he writes. Like, did he have like a scientific approach to the guitar oh. arrangements? Or if anybody has science, it's him. And nobody else, everybody else is kind of guessing. Nothing against everybody else. I mean, Clear Mountain was unbelievable. And Bob, of course, Bob Bob. Yeah. Uh, but Madha is another level entirely. I've never seen it in another musician or human. And it's not just about his music. It's about him as a person as well. He is at another level. 
it's it's incredible. Like it, it, it changes your life as a human being and a musician, and you embrace things that you normally wouldn't have thought of. And I just respect him so much uh, in every capacity, and the things that he has done for me on a personal level, on a musical level, and. I just, it really is a special thing to be introduced and to be able to work with somebody in that capacity. And I've worked with some really great, great people. As I mentioned, you know, the first guy I ever recorded a real record was with Bob Clearman. I mean, oh my gosh, he was the man in the 80s across yeah. the board. So, and and is still so relevant, you know, in every way. So uh, the people, I, I was lucky enough to, to be introduced to really great people from the beginning, when I was a kid, all the, all the musicians I worked with as a young man, and I, I was always a lot of focus and I, I was a lot of positives. Uh, it wasn't like bands beating each other up in the back of the van or anything like that. You know, it's like I, I always had really great experiences. I, I did karma. I don't know what it is, but um, by the time I got to Mutt, I had to be ready and all those people ahead of him. Um, and just being able to to work with someone like that and have some kind of success. I, I can't even explain it. It's such a blessing. It's incredible. Yeah. Would you say that Mutt made you a better player? Did, did he Absolutely. make you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think just a player. I think it's being a player is just one aspect of your life. You right. Being a human being, you have to kind of embrace <clears throat> a lot of things. And right. it, it dribbles into your music, you know, and, and just having that experience from him and the knowledge of how things work. You say it's a frequency thing. That's one part of it. He would dial in things. I mean, we had this one guitar, which did most of the work as Brian's 62 Strat. And it had this nasty kind of, and he would always talk about it. would talk about it. So it's got this nasty thing. And they would spend an hour or two just notching out this nasty thing around just under a few thousand cycles. And I was like, I've never seen anybody do this. But when he did it, and I said, I don't understand why that's so important. He goes, because that sound interferes with the snare drum and the vocal and everything else that's important. And when you dialed it out and they notched this really narrow thing just under 2,000 cycles on the console, and it became this warm, beautiful sound all of a sudden. And he understood that. And I just thought, wow, okay. <laughs> just, you know, things like that. And there was a multitude of things like that. Do you remember the, your, like the main guitar rig that was used on that record? Like, was there like a bunch of different amps? Was it a Rockman or? A lot of Rockman. Um, he loved that. We had a rack mount version uh, that we used. And uh, I know specifically it was three amps and that. And he had it on four input faders. So it was a Marshall 100 watt, a Vox AC30 from the 60s, and a high watt, a 50 watt head. And we kind of had them all mic'd up with the Rockman. And he would kind of move the inputs around, decide, depending on the sound that he was looking for, and we adjust it. So it was combinations of those four inputs uh, with different guitars. Mostly that Strat, a couple of PRSs, um, Brian Les Paul. Was there any Charvels or like anything with like no sustainers? nothing like that? We didn't know anything like that. I had a black Charvel, but it just didn't work. Let me ask you: when he's doing stuff like taking out notches and and you're working so meticulously and so minutely, do you ever say to yourself, "How the hell are we going to do this live?" Like, does does, does, <laughs> does playing it live become a concern? Because it really does. And right. we had to, uh, you know, rethink it. But the we had a really great thing where uh, we started touring off that record in Europe, and Mutt was coming out to the sound checks, and he was kind of guiding us through. Okay, 
I know you can't physically play five guitar parts at one time because that's kind of what existed on some of these tracks, like Not Guilty and all that. And yeah. uh, he said, just play the parts that are most memorable to people. Don't worry about the, the other thing. And the fact that Brian had to sing and play guitar took a lot away because he couldn't really focus on the guitar part itself. He had to kind of do something, a hybrid of it, to be able to sing and play. I mean, that's hard enough as it is anyway. So outside of using tracks, which we never did, we just had to rethink the song a little bit. And uh, it, that's kind of what we did. And Mutt came out and helped us with that for quite a few months to say, okay, focus on this. Don't do that. And he would have the sound checks and kind of guide us through the tracks to help us. So we kind of rethought everything yeah. in that capacity. So. Just the last song part- on, uh, I was just going to say, the last song on Waking Up the Neighbors, Don't Drop That Bomb on Me. I still call it the best song that Def Leppard never recorded. <laughs> <laughs> that riff, was that kind of a throwaway from Hysteria? Or like, what, what's the story with that? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I wasn't part of the, that going together. I just came in and did all the parts after. But uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. The, the actual musicality of it, Certainly. I mean, Mutt was still sort of involved with them. He had been part of this a record called Adrenalize. And yeah. I remember recording with them then, and they were sending over mixes of it because he had been involved in some of the tracking. And, mm-hmm. Okay. I think Phil was actually going there on the weekends and doing stuff there because I used to run into him. Oh, wow. But uh, anyway, I, I, I think, yeah, there was a little bit of that. And I think a lot of it crept into Brian's music. I have rough mixes of the Wake Up the Neighbors that Mutt made before Bob got involved, mm-hmm. Crew Mountain down the mix side, that you just close your eyes and say, well, it's Def Leppard with Brian Adams on vocals. I mean, the, the way the drums sound, the BGs are all right up in your face, and there's huge things like that. And yeah. it's, it's impressive. But Brian didn't want to sound and be accused of trying to sound like that, so he pulled a lot of that back in the mix mm-hmm. stage. So hence you got a more... Brian Adams' version of that. So. Yeah, uh, we okay. need a copy of that record. <laughs> I need a copy of. I need a copy will, of Brian Adams' War you. Machine. Yes, <laughs> will it to me, please? <laughs> I will it because if I put it out, then I would be probably put to death. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, will it to me? I will accept it and uh, I'll do your eulogy. <laughs> um, just one thing about about your guitar solos, and we talked a little bit at the big at, at the beginning of how you set stuff up. But I, I was always told, and I think it was Joe Perry who said, "You know what? You have to be able to sing the solo." When when you hear you know walk this way here, it's as important as the lyric. It's as important as the song. Is that something that you? Is that part of your approach where you just say people need to be able to walk away and sing this part? I, don't, I mean, after the fact, you know, that'd be great. I, I used to do that. I still do it myself. I can sing guitar solos. When I was a kid, I worked at uh, in at the night shift on the weekend at Vancouver Press, which was the province and Sun newspaper, and we used to do this job there. Mm. And they, they would leave the board because it was late at night, and all my colleagues and I, we were music fans and players, and we would sing guitar solos of, like, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin to each other as a joke, you know, because if you could do that, that means the solo is memorable. So I don't think I consciously ever did that. Uh, It just, it wasn't uh, demoed from the original and it didn't just doesn't happen, which like Native Son off uh, Into the Fire, a lot of that was from the demo, which I probably did then, yeah. And, uh, but I can sing all those parts now because I've been part of that. It's been part of my psyche, I guess, or whatever. And uh, but that's 
that's just time and the fact that the song's been out for a while or the solo for everything I do, which was done really quickly, uh, thankfully, because that song came in at the very end of the session and had a, a kind of a, a deadline to, to do. So that solo was like a combination of Brian and Matt and I sitting with the guys from the movie going, we need the song, we need the song, talking about their racehorses, whatever they were talking about in the, co- in the control room. And the first part was me and then Mutt going and then da 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 was me. And then Brian went, you know, so within 20 minutes, we had the solo. They played it 10 times and they picked the best one. And wow, that's kind of what it is. But that's rare for Mutt. I know you take a couple of days to do a solo. You just work, 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 try to get something that meant something, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- that, that became a signature thing. I, I, the success of the singles didn't hurt it. So, but if it was yeah. a backtrack in an album, nobody would care. But the yeah. fact that it was popular, I guess, made it memorable. What was the biggest difference between the recording process for Waking Up the Neighbors versus 18 Till I Die? Because it was a dramatic shift. It was like computer and then it was like band. Well, we didn't have a computer for Wake Up Neighbors. It was recorded on digital well, the, tape, but it was yeah. all done on the fly. So you had to punch in. So, and that was what took all the time. And like I say, I had to understand where the swing was that Mutt was hearing with the drum machine. It was a certain way to play that I was not used to. And over time, I finally kind of clicked in and then became a faster process. But the initial few weeks was, oh, my God, this guy, he's done another world. I never don't I just not getting or whatever and slowly we became accustomed to it and it, it worked but uh, but 18 till I die we had pro tools so they could get away and they could tighten up the drums and they could okay don't worry about the guitar part we can make it in time with a shift of you know the odd thing you didn't have to actually play it you could take the performance and make it more where like I was describing to where you wanted to hear it so the process was faster I think that's what that the difference was faster yeah and there's so many great songs on 18 Till. I mean, like, let's make a night to remember. I mean, the solo and like the sound and just like everything yeah. about that record. Like, it sounds so like organic. It sounds like you're in the room with the band. Like, <laughs> was, was it that kind of thing? Like, was it was it recorded so. off the floor or? No, no, there was, we never recorded. The only thing we recorded off the floor was Please Forgive Me. And that was done in a studio in Paris. Yeah. Well, well you get the music was, video for it. <laughs> and that's exactly how the song came off. So we did several takes of that. And, uh, did a couple of guitar solos, a couple of jangles, and that was it. And it was myself, Mickey, a bass player from Nashville, Hutch Hutchinson, David Page from Toto on piano, mm-hmm. uh, Robbie Buchanan is an organ player, Canadian from a uh, guy, I think he's back in Vancouver now, uh, a guy, a acoustic guitar player from Nashville, I forget his name, and this guy, Shane Fontaine, who was kind of like a country kind of guy, mm-hmm. a jangly guy. And Brian. And that was it. We recorded everything off the floor. And everybody went home after we did all the takes. And I stayed around to, to record the solo and stuff. But, and Do you still have that white Strat you used in the video? Yeah. It's sitting right over there in the corner. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> there you go. Hang on a sec. Please forgive me. Mitch, he's got, he's got the white Strat. That's like one of my favorite guitars ever. Do you know that that music video actually has like over a half a billion views on YouTube? It's one of the most viewed but, music videos ever. Brian, everything. Oh, Brian look does. at it. Look, look at that. So I All bought right. this at the Long and McQuaid in 1976, 75. Long and McQuaid. This is where Jeremy makes an offer. Jeremy, uh, uh, starting offer, 10,000. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's got bullet holes. So we got really drunk in Fort St. John and the guy brought a Winchester and we shot holes through it. And I said, okay, I got to play this tomorrow. Anyway, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is terrific. Um, and that, 
that played on the basic track. And please forgive me. That's probably the last time I recorded. Well, I did some re-records with Brian, but uh, the last yeah. time I recorded with it, and we kind of put it away and yeah, bring it back solo, out. Yeah, the solo for "Please Forgive Me" was Brian's '62 Strat. So. Oh, you got to bring that guitar to Montreal. I want to get a photo with it. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. I'll bring that with the cassette with. Uh, Waking up the neighbor's remix on it. Yes, I will bring a Walkman and some good headphones and just sit backstage all day listening to it. You can take it home after. <laughs> anyway, so it's still in my life, and it's kind of a, a memento. I, it's, my kids will have it, so there you go. Yeah, that's there an awesome go. guitar, though. Uh, before we run out of time, I just want to ask you about the period between Reckless and Into the Fire, because it, it was, of course... You know, pre-internet, pre-YouTube, you came to Montreal and then you disappeared, and then for for three years you just you in, you sort of didn't exist because uh, we couldn't just dial about, you up on a phone, right? Um, <laughs> maybe, are you we know, talking about after Into the Fire between them? No, between Reckless and Into the Fire because it was a three-year gap, and you know, back in the day, you would come to the town, you would tour, and then after that, you you you, you sort of didn't exist in our town until the next tour. Um, um, I, I'm going to hope I got the timeline timeline right. I think we did Reckless. We played the forum. The following year, we recorded Into the Fire. And but it came out in 87. 87. And then we didn't we didn't go through Canada. Is that correct for them? No, you did. But, I mean, it, it, were, it wasn't like today we're on YouTube. You know, like right now, if you're on tour, I can just go punch it up and I can see you any night and every night. But back then. I, mean, but, I, but, I know that after Into the Fire, there was a, quite a long time that, uh, 88, we recorded, uh, we went over to Europe for, I guess, we, places like the Middle East and stuff. It's a place we'd never been to before. We went to London and recorded about eight or nine songs with Steve Lillywhite, a producer that Brian was considering because Bob wanted to move on. And Brian wanted to try something different. That didn't really pan out. We went back in 89. We recorded everything with Bob Clearmountain again. All these songs that we'd started with Steve didn't really pan out. Mike Fraser came in, Bob Rock came in, and then the following year, Brian, the early part of 1990, Brian said, I've talked Mutt Lang into making the next record. So, so but, but, that was three years of kind of like idleness, you know, no real touring to speak of. The odd little thing, Bruce would put us on a couple of summer dates or something, but uh, but there was really like not the same level of, of work that we enjoyed. So, but after that, of course, but I do want to know about because Reckless was so huge. How 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 intense was the pressure for Into the Fire? I mean, did the record company sit on top of you and go, mm, "I don't hear another Summer of '69"? Mm, I don't hear another like. Were you free to just make the album? Was there a lot of pressure? Did, did you sense as a band like, "Oh boy, if this isn't as big as Reckless, maybe we're like," because well, Reckless was sense, so huge. My, yeah, my sense of it was. While we were making that record, there was a certain amount of songs. Halfway through the recording process, we got offered a tour to Amnesty International and was six yeah. outdoor dates, I think. With uh, Sting, Peter Gabriel. Sting, uh, Peter Gabriel, U2, uh, uh, who else was there? Joan Baez, Lou yeah. Reed. It was uh, the Neville Brothers, a real cross-section of music. And yeah, it was great. Every different place would bring out local people that, you know, Jackson Brown came to San Jose, whatever. It was all uh, individual. By the time we got to New Jersey, the last show, Miles Davis played that night. Uh, Santana was there. All kinds of people. Like It was amazing. Yeah. Police reformed for that. Then uh, they had yeah. been out of sorts for quite yeah. a while. And so I think that experience for Brian, he really wanted, he could see that there was some kind of like artistic shift going on 
and he wanted to capitalize on it and talk about more topical things and songs rather than just what he'd already gone over several times in Cuts Like an Act and Reckless. Well, how many times can you sing about, you know, your guitar has six strings and your girlfriend has left you or whatever, you know? Let's move on to more mature themes. I'm in my 30s, blah, 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 blah. So I, I, that's all the only way I can explain it from his side. And him and Jim were starting to hit the wall a little bit on their collaborations. So I think it, the things were changing. So it, and as much as I still uh, consider that record my favorite one we ever did, Again, oh, great. Native off. Son, remember. I mean, another day. If you play that in Montreal on the upcoming tour, I'll I'll, I'll thank you forever. <laughs> so great. Um, it's a nice so homage, the, indigenous uh, remembrance, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that as well. So there's all that, and and I have indigenous background, so uh, that means a little bit to me. And with the fact that we got to re- replicate the three records in London last month, uh, it was really a triumph for me because. More often than not, records that are 20, 30 years, 40 years old, they don't see the light of day again, and only in small little snippets. And right. the fact that we were able to reproduce the entire record and the work it took, it was, oh boy, I forgot about that. So it was yeah. such a great tribute as, as to yourself and, and to everybody and to the music. So I, I really enjoyed doing that in a really special location like Royal Albert Hall where it's really intimate and you know genuine fans of Brian being there, and they were expecting that. So I think that what a reward to, to be able to uh, salute the music once again. And right. there's a good chance that will never happen again. Who knows? But were uh, those shows recorded? Maybe we'll get like a three CD box yes. set one day. The last the last night was, and uh, that was waking up the neighbors. And so some of it was recorded on film, some of it was recorded on tape. Uh, we always record everything anyway because of how our setup is. Yeah. So we have every night uh, if we want. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it was great. And the, specifically Into the Fire, I was really looking forward to that. That's my favorite record that we ever recorded. We recorded that off the floor. And Brian, we recorded at Brian's house in West Vancouver. Mm. We had He had a studio console set up in his basement. And Bob was there, of course, Bob Claremont. And it was just delightful. You know, it's just one of those things you just think, wow, that's what a great time in your life to have that. And then you have a, a little audio representation, a snapshot of what, everything that was going on in your life. And it has a lot of meaning. So yeah. I really have uh, a lot of connection to that. Anyway. One of my favorite songs that Into the Fire, it's like on the D side, Hearts on Fire, that riff, that <sighs> bow, nah, 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 it's so good. How can we, You guys need to put that into the set list a little bit more. That whole um, album needs to be more visible on the set list, quite frankly. Yeah, it's hard to do them all, though. And of course. the idea is to promote what you've done recently. So obviously of we're course. doing so happy things and we're doing four or five things, kind of switching things around. Yeah, and He wants to promote that. And that's the artist's license. And that's great. But Yeah. And we have a feature in our show now where fans can come. We start about three quarters, three quarters of the way through and you can request a song from the audience. People bring signs, so... His songs from like 11 where you're like, oh, I didn't even miss on that record. It was like, whatever. But, you know, it just, and you get, oh my gosh, or songs that were from the Jeff Lynne record or that you just yeah. never really listened to. And somebody pulls a sign up and you're sweating and think, okay, what's the chords? You know? Somebody's holding up to like this side of paradise. And you're like, well, I know. can play that. But, <laughs> well, well thing start is, we practicing remember because I'll, I'll be there with my sign. Yeah. So, or, or things from the first record, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. So we remember, we remember we played several times, but uh, uh, win some, lose some, or something from the first record. Like, 
<laughs> what is that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, those are just like the fame, the, the fans that are like, oh yeah, I'm an original fan. You know, I'm the real fan. Here's my, you know, <laughs> play War Machine. <laughs> I, think, I think they just do it to see if we can stumble, which we do, you know, routinely. Yeah. Well, at least you know you're not up there miming, so that's good. Well, well here the good think? thing is that the last album is classic, where he's redone these cuts. So that means we'll hear "Teacher, Teacher" and "Hiding from Love." So that's perfect. Uh, possibly, you know, <laughs> we, we don't know what's coming at any given night. But generally, yeah, it's the last. It's the a bulk of "Reckless." It's a bulk of "Waking Up the Neighbors," a bit of "Cuts Like a Knife," and whatever is recent. You know, we just that's kind of been the template for our tour schedule the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. I know he doesn't. Never asked about the three. You never asked about the three-piece era, which went for almost five years. Well, I was actually I was going to ask that because "Live at Budokan" is a, is a great live record. Um, why did you go to a three-piece? Uh, that was Brian, and he was going through some personal things with his life, and was kind of a send-off. Uh, I guess just after we did the unplugged, and he was he was going through some stuff. And he said, I, I got to go do these radio shows in America. And I've already promised it. And if I cancel them, then it's big radio and they will never play my music again. So we're going to go on again. They're just private shows, right, for radio before Christmas. Right. And so we went and did them. And he said, just you and I and Mick, we're going to do like half an hour. That's all you have to do. And But he loved it. He absolutely loved it. He could be the punk that he always wanted to be. And he has that in him, in his, his approach. So... Um, and we just kept doing it. He said, I want to try this for a while. I was like, oh, God. You want me to do songs from Wake Up the Neighbors with one guitar? <laughs> <laughs> Rethink it, dude. Turn into Pete Townsend, which is kind of what I, I looked as a, as a as an idea. But just try to play the, the melodies and, and the chords at the same time on the guitar. And he played bass. Mm-hmm. And hang in there, Mickey. Sorry. And uh, and that went for four or five years until I talked him into getting a bass player. And he went back to guitar. And, you know, <laughs> it became better. But it, but it was a it was a fun era. I mean that that Budokan uh, album is great. Yeah, I think for the time, I think every artist can do what he wants. You know, it's up to him. It's, you're not you know bound by some invisible contract to be a certain person. Try it. Let's see what happens. Five years might have been a bit of long, but the initial year or so, the first gigs we did was like opening up for the Rolling Stones. I was terrified. <laughs> so, this is like I don't know if this is going to work, and we did because the songs themselves always hold up. Yeah. If it's just Brian by himself with nothing singing, people will come. I mean, guys, the song is, if it's memorable, he has the voice, you just him and a guitar. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. And we're, we become the, the, the surrounding. And that's the key. That's something you discover over the years that the songs become larger than the artists. And that's why you can go see video or you can go see anybody today that's in their 70s. Maybe they don't have the physical gift anymore like they used to, but they, the audience hears the song like when they first heard it yep. and they're singing it away anyway and they don't hear the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it, there's something to that. And that's what gives the whole era such longevity to me that the songs are still, they're still relevant. So. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like you don't even own the songs anymore. It's owned by the world. No, and, and, and Brian can do something like Bare Bones and it sounds killer. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it sounds good. And yeah. he can relax and enjoy and sing and not be singing over crashing drums and, and a loud guitar player and all this other crap. And, and he said, he admits that he's, I, I rediscovered how much fun I had seeing doing that. So God bless him. Yeah. Here, I'll, I'll ask you this as, as my final question. Okay. Uh, you've never done a solo album. Why not? Why not just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to yeah. go sing and 
yeah. shred and I, I really want to embrace something that is meaningful to me and I wouldn't just put out a solo record for the sake of doing it because I don't see the point. The only thing I have done is a tribute to surf music, which was kind of an accident. And uh, I did one about 20 years ago. I did a Christmas one last year. Uh, it's been sitting there for years. I just haven't been able to finish it. And I finally did. And then there was a bunch of new material that I'd written like five, six years ago. And it's ready to be mixed. I just got to get up to Vancouver to do that. I haven't been able to do my tour schedule not so. Right. Um, so there's that. That's the only real solo thing I've done. I've written so many bits. And I got sitting here that I have to complete. I just have to uh, stick my nose to the grindstone and, and put it out. But it has yeah. to be meaningful. Bob Rock is grinding me to do something next year because he's busy and I'm busy. But we're going to get together and use people yeah. that we know and love and, uh, and do some stuff. Cause it'll be the new payolas. Yeah. No, it'll be more guitar, like, <laughs> like the blow by blow kind of thing, you know, yeah. cause that's what we love and we want to, we want to go back to that. So mm-hmm. here, and, I, and, back. and my final one, just in terms of loyalty, uh, Brian, of course, has stuck with you, but you've of course stuck with Brian because you're, you're Keith Scott. I'm sure you've gotten calls from people like Sting or Peter Gabriel or so who say, Hey, Come be in our band. Come and be in the Ringo Star Alls, you know. The, and and you haven't. You you no, no, were you getting a lot of offers? No, no. I really I I'm, in the eighties when I was more visible and reckless and all that was it was more. But I, I think it's it's a different business now, and people like to do things quickly and efficiently and the least amount of expense because they don't have the budgets anymore. And yeah. That's a really big consideration. So, I mean, I don't have a, I, my rate is this or anything like that. It's just about what's convenient. And uh, even the things with Jan, which were over 10 years ago now, I mean, that was great for Bob and it worked because Brian had gone by himself a while. But, you know, it's more, it's more prudent for them to use a local person that you don't have to fly in and all that and put them in a hotel. And just use the people that are available. The music doesn't require what I sort of uh, learned to do. So, yeah. It has to be a specific kind of artist, a specific kind of music that warrants my involvement. So yeah, like I, I, I don't, I don't go out. I don't. I'm not interested in going out and soliciting that. I, I'd rather work on something on my own that I know is meaningful for me at yeah. this point in my life. So, well, I know who I'm hiring to put some grease on my record. Hitting <laughs> up Keith Scott. Thank you very much for having me, guys. <laughs> hey, one you. last question before you go. I'd be doing a disservice to my Britney Spears fans out there because I'm a big <laughs> Britney fan. Talk about Don't Let Me Be the Last to Know and how that song came about really quickly. <laughs> well, that's it's a long story, honestly, but uh, that is, again, Mutt Lang. And yeah. the story is we were doing tra- overdubs in, in France for 18 Till I Die, and Mutt was working on an edit, and I was sitting behind him, and I was playing this chord scale up the neck, and he stopped, and he turned around, and he said... What is that? I said, that's just something I've just been working on. It says chord scales. Hmm. Uh, that was it. And several months later, the record was out. And he actually phoned me in West Van and he said, Hey, um, I, you know that idea you were playing? At a, at, it was like a year ago. <laughs> I said, What are you talking about? He said, It was a thing you played. And I used it for this Britney Spears song uh, that we wrote for Shania, but we gave it to Britney. Uh, so you're, I'm giving you a songwriting credit. And I went, well, I didn't have anything to do with the song. He goes, no, no, no. And this is part of my... And, and being a writer and having all the obstacles as a writer when he started, and 
and the people trying to steal from him and all that, which he considers a no-no. And he said, no, this is how it is. And you did something and I'm going to reward you for it. I'm going to reward. I'm going to give you credit for it because you, without that part, the song isn't right. Yeah. So he, that was his, his whole initiation. And he included me on that. And that was her biggest record. So, I mean, it was so sweet of him to do that, but not yeah. necessary. Nobody else would have done that. So but that's the difference between a Mutt Lang and maybe somebody else. So, wow. It's a human thing. What was the part? Was it the like? What was the part that you were playing? It was just a climbing sort of chord part in the second verse. It was just this thing. I I just add some major chord scale, but you add the nine all the way up, and has a certain sound when you use the open strings. And he thought that was really cool, and he used it. So, but it just it's just remarkable that he would do that. I'm always so. It's just one of many things, really. It just. I'm just really like we did this whole new thing virtually here. Mutt was in Switzerland. Brian was in Vancouver. Everything was locked down. We used a special uh, software where I could run Pro Tools and we could all hear it simultaneously. And we would do all my parts here. Brian was listening to everything and suggest things in Vancouver. Mutt was recording it all in Switzerland. And that's how we got all the guitar parts done for, for Happy It Hurts, which was like four or five tracks that I was part of. So. Yeah. No, it just, he's just amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. He's just something else. So, absolute you legend, you know? I have a lot of respect for him. Well, anyway. uh, Brian Adams, so happy it hurts. You can pick it up now wherever you get your music. Going to be hitting the road. Uh, make sure you pick up your tickets. I, I'm calling it uh, Screw the Stadium Tour, Screw Everything Else. That Brian Adams Tour is just going to be absolutely epic. Just so much fun every time. Uh, you just can't go wrong. Uh, make sure you get your tickets at venco.ca, also ticketmaster.ca. And uh, I was going to say buy the VIP packages, but you guys don't do that. You don't uh, You don't milk the fans. <laughs> well, I think we're changing this this trip. Oh yeah, Brian is, he's he's normally has a GA audience because he likes the excitement, but they're starting to see that it's probably not the most prudent thing. So I think right. he's changing his tune. Well, that'll be awesome. Either way, we'll see you in Montreal this September. Looking All right, forward thank to you. It. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. I have a lot of friends there, and uh, big shout out to my friends at Premier Music, uh, Gino and the gang, uh, who are, have been so great to us uh, through all they do as far as. Uh, publishing and neighboring rights and all that they've been just a force for so many people so many friends and i just love them to death they're great like family for me so i'm looking forward to seeing them too awesome and um cory and i will have to come out to the to the show yeah. and say hi he connected with me yesterday or two days ago and said hi he's a great guy and a great player and he said he's working with michael Pagliaro. is that right is- yeah michelle pagliaro yes yeah. yes so he's been doing that and uh, he's a gifted guy and he's cool well please give him my regards yeah, I grew up with him. He's he's literally my neighbor. He lives like two houses yeah. down. <laughs> he does all my guitar work for me. I texted him. I was Perfect. like, yeah, I'm interviewing Keith Scott. And he, the first thing he asked me, he's like, do you know Corey? <laughs> yeah. No, he's a great guy. We got to, he, he did some dates with us in Quebec a few years back. So, awesome. yeah, great guy. There you go. Merci dude. bien. Absolute right. pleasure. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Tout les An all new episode of the Mitch Lafon and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.